Welcome to Modern Career. I'm your host, Mary Humiston. Whether you're thinking about changing, advancing, or even reinventing your career, we want to help you live your full potential. In each episode, I cover work and career topics, leveraging my HR leadership expertise, and through interviews with other career experts and professionals from around the world. Subscribe today and visit modern-career.com for blog posts, pointers, career stories, and more. Let's jump into our next episode. Welcome to Navigating a Competitive Job Market. Understanding how to best navigate a job market is a really important career topic. When it's competitive, and competitive is definitely an understatement for the times that we're in, it's even more important because it will take greater agility, creativity, and resilience to navigate it well, and there's so much to consider. We're really pleased to have with us to help sort it all through and to at least chew around some of the most important aspects of navigating a really tough job market, Jana Rich. Jana is the founder of Rich Talent Group, a boutique executive search firm that partners with today's visionary companies to diversify and build transformative teams that help change the world. Before founding Rich Talent Group, Jana spent over 18 years at two of the world's largest executive search and assessment firms. At Corn Ferry International, Jana launched the industry's first digital recruiting practice in 1996. At Russell Reynolds Associates, she led the global consumer digital and media practice and the consumer sector of North America. She holds a bachelor's in psychology from Vassar and an MBA from the Stanford Graduate School of Business. Jana, thank you so much for being here. Mary, thank you so much for having me. As a matter of fact, Jana, I think you and I partnered on quite a number of talent and leadership searches. I think it was 20 years ago, if I'm right. Do you recall? Was that at Russell Reynolds, maybe? We almost got a chance to work together at The Gap. That's a long time ago. That is a long time ago. It's like 20 years. And by the way, that was also very difficult economic times, that period of time. And there will be in the future. But as I said, this is a very, very competitive job market. So we're thrilled to have this dialogue together. And I want to start, if I could, just asking your thoughts on the job market itself. Let's do a little baselining. How do you think the market has changed in the last few months? And what might some of the lasting effects be as we look forward on how we work and how we navigate a job search? It might be helpful to put it in just a little bit of even historical context, because when I look back on my 25 years in executive recruitment, I've gone through three different downturns. The first was in the end of 2001. It was referred to as the dot-com bust, and it was largely focused in around the internet space. Then there was the horror of 9-11. Then there was the economic downturn of 2008. And here we are in the middle of the coronavirus. And to be honest, this is the worst I've seen, the job market, in terms of how broad it is. It really feels like just about every industry is impacted, just about every region of the world is impacted. And it's the first time in any of the economic downturns that there's been literally people's health and their lives at stake. It's one thing, obviously, to go through the economic challenges, but to know when people's lives are at stake. And I've never seen so many jobs lost in any of the downturns I've been through. And I think it's 
referred to is also an inefficient job market in that not only are the numbers huge in terms of those who are looking for work in some form or underemployed, but so many who are qualified, really qualified, who are either unemployed, underemployed, underpaid. So the competition is really, really severe. It's true. When you look at some companies that have had to lay off or furlough half of their workforce, for example, it's truly impacting all levels, all functions. And you're absolutely right. There's lots of great people, whether they be senior, mid-level, more junior level, but who are on the job market for no reason other than the fact that their companies are going to be severely challenged. It doesn't mean that they're not strong performers, but that the companies had to right-size their balance sheets to get through a difficult period of time. Exactly. And given that context and such high unemployment and so many people looking to get back into work, either what they were doing prior or thinking more broadly about it, how do you think someone could differentiate themselves and or really stand out given how competitive it is? Differentiation is a great question. And I think what is most important for anybody is to do a skills assessment right now. What are you really great at? And quite frankly, narrow it down because no one's going to remember that you're great at 10 things. They'll remember that you're really great at maybe two or three things. Also, try to be as thoughtful as you can about what you think your industry or your target industry needs. So if, for example, they need X, Y, and Z but you're highlighting that you have P, D, and Q in terms of skills and abilities, you know that there's not a match there. So I'll give a concrete example. If you look at a lot of very large companies, they are trying to deliver their product through digital channels more so than ever before. So if you were somebody sitting in Silicon Valley, for example, who has very strong digital DNA, you might not think oh, I should highlight that because in Silicon Valley, everybody has that skill set. But if you were trying to think about, oh my goodness, maybe a legacy CPG company or retail company or financial services company needs that DNA because they might not be as strong at it, that's a really great thing to highlight. Sometimes we don't even understand that the things that make us unique aren't in our little bubbles of our own ecosystem that we sit in, but think more broadly about what other industries, other geographies, other companies might need from you. So I love the point. It's really appreciating what makes you uniquely qualified. And let's talk about this geographic part, because again, one might think I want to stay quite comfortable where I'm living and I want to stay in a certain geographic remit. But What are your thoughts on how open do people need to be, given how competitive it is to thinking about going where the jobs are and potentially facing a move? I don't think we've ever seen a time in our history, honestly, where geography in the short term doesn't really matter. When you think about basically everyone is working remotely, with the exception, of course, of frontline workers. But in terms of office workers, everyone who can is working from home. The question is, Does that change anything in terms of the minds of the employers for longer term? So, for example, we've talked to companies who are actively recruiting right now. Let's just say, hypothetically, the company was in New York. And we had great candidates, outstanding candidates, who are very unlikely to consider a relocation to New York. And for the foreseeable future, no one in that company is going to be going into their offices in New York. 
will it open up the parameters where more and more companies say, I want the best talent. I don't care where they live. I will say we're not there yet. I mean, I want to be careful not to mislead people that all the companies we work with are all of a sudden flexible on geography. They're not yet. But I think we'll see more and more of that happening because what's happening is companies are learning that work can be done remotely, that people can be hired without anyone actually ever having met them. That's a pretty unique and different thing. One of the most challenging things, honestly, and companies are doing it, but how to onboard somebody, how to build them into the culture remotely. So all this is coming from the company lens. And the question you asked is, if I, as an individual, am a job seeker, what should I highlight in terms of my geographic preferences? So from the individual job seeker's perspective, what we are finding is people are more flexible on geography than they have been in the past. With a caveat, I'll be honest, I don't think a lot of people are dying to go into major cities right now. I think there's some fear around major cities for sure. But let's just pretend hypothetically we had a company that was based in Denver or a company that was based in Austin or I'll call them quote unquote secondary markets. They're not San Francisco, LA, New York, just to use a US centric lens on this. You're finding people who are really prioritizing quality of life. They actually are seeing a migration, honestly, out of major cities. So it's interesting for companies that are not based in maybe those three primary markets, they may actually do better than they would have at any time in the past because people aren't quite as attached to their lives in major cities, living in small apartments because of everything we've all witnessed. Awesome. So are we seeing at all job postings or requests for a particular role that says out of the gate, you can work from home? Or it's more, we really like it to be in this location. And in the meantime, it's okay to have remote working, or are we actually starting to see a shift that the roles can fully be work from home roles that otherwise might not have been? It's probably important here just to pause for a second and frame what the level of positions are that we work on, because I think it's a particular lens that may or may not apply more broadly. So we do work that's all VP level on up. Typically with high growth companies, those are direct reports to the CEO. They're on the leadership team. Inside of bigger companies, they might be one or two levels down from the CEO. But I would say those are the level of positions that will be probably the least likely to have a job posting that says you can work from anywhere forever, basically. Here's the difference. You asked a question, short term, Absolutely. And I think no one even knows exactly how long short term will be. I think we've seen certainly through the fall, in many cases through the end of the year. So let's pretend I were to take a senior level position in New York City. I don't necessarily want to move there right now. I think most of the companies we work with in those examples would certainly say at least until January, you'd be working remotely. And again, I think we don't know exactly how long the shelter-in-place orders will be in place. We don't know if there'll be a second wave where people will have to go back into their homes again. So certainly companies are not forcing relocation until we're through this. But for those senior-level roles, still to this day, the company does expect that eventually the people will relocate if they're at that VP level on up. That might change, by the way, but that's still today what's happening. Janet, you clearly you know a ton about the broad job market, but your expertise, again, and your whole background has been also 
in the search partner world. So you mentioned too, what level really works with search firm partners. What other advice might you have for those levels, finding and working with search firm partners? What are some of the things that you would recommend or suggest and what's good practice? You should absolutely find out who specializes in your industry, your function, and your geography. We're a small boutique firm. We only have 15 people on our team, but we have specialized lanes that we know and that we're good at. If you're working with a big firm, obviously they have far more people, but in a similar fashion, your search professionals are pretty focused. So how do you find that out? Honestly, it's relatively easy. I'm not kidding. You go to their websites. They're all organized by industry, a little less so function, but certainly by industry and geography. And sometimes you have to dig in a little bit to understand, do they do marketing searches? Do they do engineering searches? But you can at least get awfully close just by looking at their websites, to be honest. And then you want to be really targeted. So if you think about, in my world, high growth consumer tech, VP level on up, there's not a massive number of people who do that. So my point is, if I'm a job seeker, find the three to five people who are most knowledgeable in your industry, your function, your geography, and build relationships with them. So how do you do that? The best way possible is if you can find somebody who knows them already, who can provide a referral. I get lots of inbound emails. And when somebody I respect and admire says the person's great, believe me, that goes to the top of my inbox. But oh, by the way, there's a lot of people who are also in my inbox that I don't have that connection point with. And so how do those people sort of break above the noise? It's having a really good and targeted, whether it's email intro, whether it's a resume, whether it's your LinkedIn, this comes back again to being really concise, really focused. If you say to me, Jana, I could do anything, I'm not going to remember you. If you say, Jana, I could do financial services with an expertise in marketing, sales, biz dev, all the go-to-market functions, just as an example, I'm going to remember that. You've got to give me one or two hooks to play upon. The other thing I would say is, and this is a little less so now in the job market we're in, but it would probably astound people how many folks get a call from an executive recruiter and never respond to it. And what's really important is respond to it. By the way, it could be something you're absolutely not interested in, but be helpful to them. Give them even five or 10 minutes of your time. Try to give them a good referral if you have one. They will remember the folks that are helpful to them. Just like any relationship, sometimes you have to invest some time in it, even if this specific thing isn't that interesting. I was always curious. I mean, I've always believed in that. I'm responsive as best I can, always have been, and that's served me well, as you say. Do you think people track that or they just remember it? I would say it's both things. It's more so memory than like some kind of scorecard inside of our databases. Or that they picked up something from that conversation and it may find its way into something that's tracked. Here's what's interesting. It's all tracked. Who responds? Did it take three or four tries to get them to respond? Yes, all that stuff is tracked. And what's interesting is it is more a negative versus positive, meaning you'll notice a recruiter, oh, geez, Jane Smith was called 10 times and she was never responsive to us on anything. I'm not even going to try. That does absolutely register on our brains. 
the positive, I would say, is less a database-centric thing. It's a very personal thing. You will hear amongst our team all the time, oh, the search came up for this head of marketing. You should call Jane Smith because she was so helpful to me. So that's a little bit more anecdotal, but I would say even more powerful because that comes back to the power of referrals. And those that have helped us, those that are responsive, those that invest in a relationship with us are always going to be top of mind. That's the truth. Yeah. And Jenna, I have personal experience just returning a call thinking I would refer someone and being interested in it myself. And if you had told me that before, I would have said zero probability. And yet you find out more and it leads to something else and it can happen. But I fully agree with you on that front. And you mentioned, of course, being recommended by others, becoming a desirable target to search firms. Any other thoughts on that? I guess if you're known for something, if you really stand out and you have something in your online profile, some really big industry expertise or skill set, or you've demonstrated it somewhere, spoken at a conference or written something, or and maybe that takes us to, because you did bring up your the paperwork, if you call it that side of things, the digital representation and profile. Can you give us some thoughts or tips on making either a resume CV stand out and or leveraging your LinkedIn profile to really ensure that who you are, your brand, what you're looking for matches with the kinds of opportunities that you might want? Three different things to think about and highlight here. So the first would be, how do you become known? How do you get on people's radar? One of the things I always say to people is there'll be numerous opportunities to speak, to be on a panel, to be on a discussion and say yes to those opportunities. I mean, literally say yes to almost all of them with the caveat being, make sure it's something you know that you're knowledgeable about. But say yes to things that honestly sometimes might seem like not the best use of your time. You'll be surprised at what comes out of that. So I'll give a great real-time example. Right now with everybody sheltering in place, to be honest, there's really a desire for both more content and more connection. People want to learn, people want to network, people want to grow. So I was asked to be on a panel earlier this week, which is about how women can grow into the C-suite. So this is investing in folks who might be more director level or VP level, trying to take that step into the C-suite. What was interesting is one of the other panelists announced on this call that her company had 50 open positions. And I would not have even anticipated that that would have happened. So my point is, say yes to opportunities to speak, especially where there are areas of expertise. Secondly, when you think about a resume, today I will say the vast majority of people we deal with, and again, it's VP level on up, don't have a resume or don't have one that's up to date. And on the one hand, I would say maybe it's not worth a huge investment, especially if you are currently employed. But if you do have some time, you've got a little bandwidth, it is worth sprucing it up, making it stronger. If you're a VP level on up, don't feel that you have to do it in just one page. I would say it's probably two to three pages, ideally, and that that should be very detailed in terms of your accomplishments and actually the data. What were the metrics? What did you improve by virtue of doing X, Y, and Z? And then a high level of that should translate into your LinkedIn profile. Most people's LinkedIn profile is literally name, company, 
date, title. That's it. There's really no description of the role, no description of who you reported to, no description of accomplishments. And so in a world in which fewer people have fully built out resumes, it is important to beef up the LinkedIn a bit. And most people, even if you invested a ton of time in your resume, the awareness level is going to be much higher in LinkedIn. More people are going to see it. More people are going to form an impression of you based on it. So please don't put two or three pages worth of content into your LinkedIn, because unfortunately, then that will bury all the important stuff. But definitely put in there who you reported to, size of team, and any key accomplishments that you had during those positions. And the last thing I'll say about LinkedIn profiles, think about keyword searches. So really think about if your expertise was in social media, mobile gaming, anything you can imagine that might be sort of a hot growth area within your field of expertise, make sure it's in your LinkedIn because people will search for that. And if it's not in there, they'll move on. Those are such great points. I think First, your point about investing in this. And yeah, it can feel like a bit of a pain at times. Or you can park your CV for quite a while and think, oh, or your resume, and you have to go back to it and update your LinkedIn. But if you do a little bit here and there, and it really becomes something you really care about and you invest in, it's so important at all levels. I mean, you're talking about maybe director and above as well. But below that, you have to keep your LinkedIn up. And there's the spruce, you said, and updating it, but not embellishing it. And I still find, I don't know if it happens as much at the senior levels, but any study keeps sharing that some percent, it's pretty high, it's something like 16 to 20% are still embellishing in a way that leads to a lie on the profile. And that's crazy. I don't know if you've ever seen that or that comes up in your world, but I would still say, I know on the HR side of things, it does. And it's not worth any kind of risk. We absolutely have. And it starts even at the highest level with people's LinkedIn profiles that look, I don't know, cocky or arrogant. There's a way that people describe themselves that feels a bit over the top and our clients will see it. And they make an an instant impression of whether the person has the kind of cultural attributes that they want. So it's about stay with the facts, ma'am, so to speak. I agree with you. The minute you start to sense somebody is inflating something, again, you don't move on. You don't ask questions. You just aren't interested and you make kind of an instant judgment. So again, try to stay factual Don't even skirt the line of something that doesn't have to do with you or your accomplishments. Also note, by the way, there's a heck of a lot of, call it back channel referencing that goes on. My point is, even if you think no one will ever know, they will figure it out and it's so not worth it because once they figure it out, it's nearly impossible to kind of get back in their good graces. Stay with the facts, but make sure the facts are there. We find a lot of people, contrary to the arrogant person, the opposite of that is often the case, which is somebody just doesn't highlight their accomplishments. And so they kind of get lost in the mix. I think that's a good point. And I think also, we might miss things that I'd call outside the office. So maybe volunteer leadership or things that people have done beyond their core work responsibilities that show so much. It's a great point. I think people think that their LinkedIn is only for their jobs. 
And I couldn't agree more. I've talked to many people where I'm like, I think you're on two or three boards. Why aren't they on your LinkedIn? Oh, I should put that there. Absolutely. The leadership, the character, the work ethic, the everything. I find that more often, you're right, than I find the other. And your point about just really being searchable, the education, I mean, I guess you might do a search by education, company type, industry, the skills. So all those key words really matter. Fantastic. Jana, you had touched on this, but especially in times like these, utilizing a network is so important for learning about companies that are hiring or growing, for finding people that can be helpful in the broader job search. What advice do you have for reconnecting with and utilizing our networks while we're navigating a job search? Let's even start with how do you build a network to begin with? And what's the goal of creating a great, strong, healthy network? People will often say, oh, you've been a recruiter for 25 years. You know, tens of thousands of people. That's not really the goal and objective for any network. And we're sort of in the business of networking. But where our network or anyone's network is strongest, you figure out genuinely, authentically where your lanes are and play in those lanes. So for me, for example, that is primarily diverse communities. So investing in relationships with women, people of color, LGBTQ. And I've been doing that my whole life, my whole career. It is so central and core to my being and who I am. And so those networks see me as authentic. They see me as somebody who's committed over and over and over again to shining a light on those communities. And so the degree of connective tissue is incredibly strong. And so when you reach back out to a network that is authentic, that by the way, is not necessarily massive. It's the right people within your zone. It's not the number of people. And then when you reach back out and ask for help or ask for advice or ask for insight, they'll respond immediately. The other thing I would say is in those communities that you define as authentic, whatever they are for you, invest yourself in how you can help them. It's about the whole thing of put out there in the universe what you want to get back. And throughout my whole career, I've invested in trying to help train women and people of color about how they can move up into the C-suite how they can get ready for board service, and really, again, sort of shining a light on them. So when you think about our social media channels, our Facebook, our LinkedIn, all those sorts of things, try to think, again, very authentically, but are there times when you can highlight somebody that you respect, admire, and you want to shine the light on them? Because I will tell you, if you put that out there in the world in social channels, it'll come back to you. You're perceived as a person who champions others, And people want to champion those who champion others, if that makes sense. So final comments. It's not about numbers. It's not about how many people, but it's how can you touch people authentically that are in the lanes that you really care about? I really love that. I think sometimes the term networking can have a negative connotation. I mean, it's changing, but some still think, oh, I don't want to network. The truth is still that majority, I think the numbers are really high, 85 to 90% of jobs happen because of some connection, some introduction, some recommendation. So it really makes a lot of sense. Your point about authenticity is so important. I've had some very inauthentic reach outs where I've said, do I even know this person? Or when was it they last were in touch 20 years ago? And they're asking if you can help them out. But really having that be part of your being and not expecting anything in return. I also think too, we go to 
events and we're meeting people all the time, conferences, whatever, we're connecting our whole lives. But sometimes we stay in our, at least I've seen it, where we stay in our little groups who we go with and we hang out with those people and we can come out of a some connection, a conference, an event, a meeting, and not have met anybody or connected. Those who do it well have found it to be one of the most important parts of how they navigated their whole careers. Thoughts on this too. I find too, if you're going to reach out, especially if you've been a little, let's say you have to grease the wheels a little, giving them an out. So you're reaching out to someone and you may be asking them to connect you or would they be willing to share something about the company because you have an upcoming interview or you're asking them something, give them an out that if it's not too much to ask, please say no. Because I think it's that fear of rejection that stops people from asking things, but there's no harm in asking and they can say no, but give them an out. So if they say no, they say no. You think about building your networks. One of the ways I've seen that's been the most effective is do something. So right now it's obviously not physical gatherings, but do something where you do it jointly with somebody else that you respect and admire, and you know that their networks are different from, but related to your own. And so for example, throughout the course of the coronavirus, we've co-hosted several Zoom sessions. One was for CHROs, one was for CMOs, one was for board members, one was for chief digital officers. And instead of just having the 12 or 14 people that we know extremely well, in each case, we've asked a couple of people to co-host that session with us and say, we'll invite five, you invite five, you invite five. So we create 15 people of which 10 of those we didn't know already. And it's such an effective way to bring networks together because there is some sort of common theme. There's something linking us together. There's something we're going to be able to learn and share from one another and some value, hopefully, that's created there. But it's not just speaking to the same 10 or 15 people we would every single time. And oh, by the way, the other side benefit is whoever those two people are that you choose to co-host a session with, there's a halo effect. If they're well-regarded, if they're considered to be real experts in their craft, you look better. So as opposed to having it just be about you and you creating the whole thing, that piece is so important. The other thing I'll just say is when we're allowed to go back to conferences, or even if they happen virtually, whatever form they take, oftentimes you'll get the attendee list. In some cases, a week in advance, maybe it's only even a day in advance. But take the time to really pause and look at that list pretty thoroughly and figure out Let's pretend there's five people on there that you don't know that you'd really like to grab even 10 minutes during a coffee break or during a Zoom break or whatever that might be. Reach out to them. Explain briefly why it is you might want to talk to them. Explain that it's literally going to be 10 or 15 minutes. And honestly, given that you're asking for a relatively small thing, I would say at least 50% of the time you get yes, hopefully more so. And that's really valuable. It's a way that you're going to connect with somebody because you're in either the same virtual space, the same actual physical space that you wouldn't have a hook at any other time. And it's amazing to me how many people don't do that. I totally agree. I love that. Let's move to interviewing. You've interviewed so many candidates over the years. What stands out to you and what are your thoughts on what great interviewing looks like and what might be some pitfalls to avoid? I would say a great interview is similar to how I define a great conversation. And what makes a great conversation? A great conversation, I always liken it to, and I don't 
particularly play tennis, but I like this analogy. If you and I, Mary, were to be playing tennis and we had different color tennis balls, for example, and we finished the game of tennis and we looked at that court after it was all said and done, and let's pretend all of my balls were in one side of the court or all of your balls were in one side of the court. That's not a great conversation. That's not a great interview. It's where there's real interplay between the two. The other thing I would say is really demonstrate great listening skills. So I'll give a great example. And you're right, I've interviewed, I don't even know how many, I'm sure it's tens of thousands of people over 25 years. And again, all VP level on up. So you'd assume that these folks are maybe the most experienced at interviewing and having conversations. And I ask the same question every single time, always have, it has never changed. And we call it the transition tale. So we say very clearly, the first 10 minutes, and we're very explicit about 10 minutes, we'd like you to walk through the major transitions throughout the course of your career and explain to us how and why those transitions happened. We have your resume, your LinkedIn, your bio, so we're really not asking you to tell us what you did, what you accomplished, what the jobs were, none of these things. We really just want you to focus on the transitions and then we're going to have the rest of the hour to go deeper into areas where we would like to know more about the actual jobs that you've had. It is stunning to me that I'm not joking. Probably 90% of people don't accomplish that task. They go on and on and on. We'll interrupt a couple of times and say, just want to kind of wrap this section up. Just remember we're focused on transitions. We really want to save time for other things. I've had so many cases where at the 50 minute mark, 5-0, they're still doing that. And so what's concerning about that? It's not great listening skills. It's the desire to just put all your accomplishments out, but not to actually have a conversation. I should leave you wanting more. I should leave you asking me 10, 15 questions. And it's a real tennis match where the balls are going over back and forth and it's really engaged. It's really dynamic. And Unfortunately, the vast array of these are not that. So try to be concise. Try to really listen to what the question is. Try to make sure that you're engaging the other person and it's not all you just regurgitating everything you've ever done. Because trust me, no matter how great you are, you will have lost them. So it is practicing those succinct responses. I think if you don't even think about them before you show up and a little bit of practice, because you're right. So A lot of interviewing right now is also virtual, as you mentioned before, which may not always feel as interactive, but it is interactive and you have to be interactive. Thoughts about what's really important or what you might want to keep in mind in the virtual interviewing realm. Is there anything that comes to mind for you on that? It's a great question. When you think about the interviews that we had in the past that were in person, there's a little bit of a moment there for something that's not really about the interview. There's a little bit of, I'll call it social chit chat. There's something that happens by virtue of your shaking hands or you're sitting in a conference room together and trying to make sure that you create that moment in the virtual world. And we actually have a great context for that now, which I actually love. I feel like for the first time ever, honestly, we ask people how they are and we really want to know the answer and the people actually, for the most part, really do answer. They may not tell you everything about how they're feeling, but they typically today don't just say, oh, I'm fine. They will give you something more there. And you could even ask, for example, where are you sheltering in place? How's your family? I mean, there's just a way there to warm it up, which I think is important. 
The other watch out, I would say, with all these video technologies that we're all having to use, it's pretty easy to sort of talk over someone. So it's also really important to pause, let there be some quiet space in the conversation for a second to make sure they're done, to make sure you've understood the question. The other last thing I'd say is, and you mentioned this, Mary, but preparing in advance, having really researched something about the company, the role, and having a sense in your own head of what do you think the two or three most important things are for that person, that company, that role, and trying to pull back your thoughts on that. I love that. I had somebody who was practicing with me for a really important interview recently. And one of the things I asked was, why would you hire you? And that actually was a tough question for them. And it really helped because it had kind of put them on the other side and they thought through, yeah, why would, and it did help them get a little more clear and succinct. It just came up while we were, it's not one I've used many times, but it, it came up and it was really helpful. The other thing I would say, which is very aligned with that is the quote unquote sort of 30 second elevator pitch, so to speak. And that sounds salesy. It sounds awful. But actually what it is, is practicing whatever your kind of most important message is about yourself with a friend, a spouse, a sibling, whatever, and practicing it two, three, four times and getting it tight and succinct. It's actually really important. I think we can all tend to, especially when we're nervous, run on and on and on, as opposed to what are the three key points? Make them slowly, succinctly, and stop. Let the other person ask questions where they're interested in digging in deeper, but make sure you've made your three points and stop. Do you also pay attention to who follows up and thanks and when they do it or any of that? Or is that still a big deal? It's always a big deal. Yes. It really matters not only that you respond after the interview's over and thank them, but substance is key here. I mean, it sometimes feels like probably 50% of people do it and only 50%. But of the 50% who do do it, the vast majority of those feel like form letters. As opposed to, Mary, we had this great conversation. There was two or three things I really wanted to highlight out of this conversation. You know that the person has taken away something from the conversation. Again, it's actually demonstrating great listening skills. It's demonstrating what you think about yourself that is the most compelling and interesting. It's, again, keeping it succinct, but it's giving it something that feels custom. It feels very specific to that conversation you had with that person. And if you do that, I will just say you majorly stand out. It's a pretty rare thing when it happens, and it really makes a huge impact. I'm curious to, beyond the, of course, the qualifications for the role and all that goes into the fitting of the profile, do you look for anything? Does anything else, one of the things that I always love to see in someone at any level, director and above, but all levels are, I call it, are they a learner? So I look for, are they continually someone who's just curious and open and learning all the time in any form possible or that growth mindset type where they're really open to possibility change in the new? I think that as a attribute is such an awesome thing. It's someone you want to be around, you want to work with, you want to work for. Thoughts on, is there anything that you look for to, and it's that little je ne sais quoi? 
I couldn't agree more about the whole idea of somebody who's really got a learning orientation. And one of the ways it really shows up, and it might seem like a superficial thing, and it's really not, who asks really great questions. By the way, almost in any interview, I would say 98% of interviews, there's a moment where somebody says to you, do you have any other questions for me? And I know sometimes you're probably caught off guard. You may not be prepared for it. But when people are like, no, no, I'm good, it's not a good sign. To me, if you're interested and engaged and you have one hour with somebody, most of which, by the way, is not you asking questions, if there aren't any somehow you haven't done your homework or you're not that interested or you're maybe not curious and as you just described, you're maybe you're not a learner if you don't do that. Conversely, the people where the questions are great, they're insightful, they're a little deeper maybe than the average person might ask. And you almost run out of space because they have so many great questions. That's awesome. But they need to be great questions. Some people too also just try to fill the space. It's like, let me ask 10 of the most, let's be honest, basic questions. It's covered in the spec. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm actually talking about the stuff that you couldn't have already done your homework around. It's not on the website. It's not in the job spec, but they're insightful questions about, either how the business is moving towards the future or really critical aspects of this role, those kinds of questions really stand out. I love that point because as you said, expected, it's almost always asked and they may have covered everything you thought you had, but yeah, that's brilliant. Let's think of one question, by the way, that will never be covered anywhere. Let's pretend you're talking to the hiring manager. When you think about the business today, what keeps you up at night? What do you worry about? Right? That's just one example of a question that will never be covered anywhere because it's also specific to a moment in time. What is keeping you up now? What is on your mind now? I mean, there's many questions like that, but you can find questions that will really not be covered anywhere else. That's spot on. And if it were covered, you could still go down a click on it. What aspect of that? You could follow up. So that's fantastic. Just before we move on to a slightly different topic, the job search again in times like these, anything we didn't cover or think about, I was thinking of a couple things just to see your reaction as well. But given how competitive it is, there's something in sports about really spending time visualizing what you want and doing a lot of self-talk that is positive, to stay positive. Because we all know you may go for a lot of things and not get them. Or it may feel like 10 steps forward and 20 steps back at times. So it can be, and you said it in the beginning, we don't know how long, we don't know how. It can feel really hard and disconcerting at times. Here's what I'd say I think applies a lot more so even now, which is to figure out what you're really passionate about. So let's pretend you were really passionate about fitness, wellness, etc. And there were a job possibility at Peloton. Let's just say you were passionate about that brand, but the job title or role might not be as senior as you think you should have had pre-COVID, for example. With the important caveat being, I love this space. I believe in this company. Be really flexible right now as it relates to title. We've seen a lot of people who might have had the ability to be 
a CMO, but are all of a sudden saying for this company, because I'm passionate about it, it's a VP reporting to a CMO that I respect and admire. And yeah, my ego might have to take a little bit of a hit, but I want to be on that ride. I believe in that company and its mission. Those kinds of moves will pay off in a lot of different ways because you'll be in a space you believe in, which I believe means you do the best work. When you're most passionate, you're doing the best work. If you're surrounded by leaders that you admire and respect, even though, again, it might be a little bit of an ego hit, you'll be learning. And those kinds of skills that you're gaining will position you even better for when the economy is better and improved upon. So the most important thing is not just your own skill assessment, but where you're going to light up, what kinds of companies are truly going to inspire you, and then try to be really flexible as it relates to title and role. I totally agree with that. Those have been some of my best moves ever. Jenna, there are clearly people who are in jobs, but were thinking about a change and they were looking for their next move and they were maybe even close to something in their own company or making a change to something else. Is this the best time to make the move or would you say continue to grow in the job you have, stick it out and wait? Just sort of your thoughts about it's not all that you're in the job market. You might be thinking about making change right where you are or entering the job market. Is this really the right time? I think this is a time for everyone around self-reflection, around what really makes me happy. And oftentimes that can result in it's got to be different from what it is right now. I do think a lot of people, if they're really honest, were questioning whether this particular company, this particular role is where they want to be. That having been said, my overall recommendation, and there's different reasons for being unhappy, but let's just say it's only moderately unhappy. If that were the case, honestly, stay put. And not just stay put in a dial it in sort of neutral sort of fashion. I actually would say this is the time for people to over-index on commitment to their current companies because leaders right now show up everywhere in every single position at every level of a company. Because again, everyone's virtual, everyone's remote. And if you find that you can dig deep and lean in and contribute more to something you're feeling moderately okay about, oh, by the way, you might decide you actually like it better. You might learn more. You might even get promoted in a time like this and position yourself even better on the other side of it. So unless there's pretty major issues going on, and obviously in those cases, people should probably lift their head up, but this is not a job market that is good for a job seeker. So this is about, in my opinion, how do you make the best of where you are right now? And those kind of people who show up in times like this will be remembered will be rewarded. When we talk about the value of networks, the people in your current company are oftentimes the ones that are going to lead you to your next job. And it might not be for a year or two, but I'm not kidding. This is a time when we will all look back and remember who stepped up. So even if you're okay with where you are right now, try to make it awesome. It will both feel better for you while you're there And it will suit you better in terms of your long-term job prospects because people will advocate for you. Absolutely. Hey, Jenna, we learn so much from what other people did in their careers, the choices they made, 
their experiences and all kinds of lessons. You were a pioneer back when you were a rising star in several big secure companies doing quite well, but you did a pretty big jump to go build your own boutique search firm from scratch. What inspired you to take that leap? And can you share with us any learnings? It started when I was in business school. I took a class on entrepreneurship. And in that class, pretty much everyone had a business idea of something or else they probably wouldn't have been in the class. And the professor did one-on-ones with each of us. And I said, what I want is to build teams. Like that was my passion. And he said to me, that's actually really interesting and unique and different. But what's the product? What's the service? What's the actual business going to be? And I said, I don't know yet. So that's fair. So go figure out what that business product service is going to be. But hold on to that thing about building great teams, because that's unusual for someone to lead with. And that'll really stand out and be special. What I didn't know at the time was that the actual work, the product, the service was going to be building teams. That wasn't in my mindset at the time. And the reason I got into recruiting was I was hugely passionate about the consumer internet space. I was at business school between 94 and 96. So this was the launch of eBay. It was the Netscape IPO. I mean, it was all being formed right around me. And the one thing I knew for certain is I loved this innovative space. I loved working with founders. I loved creating the next new thing. And that has remained true now 25 years later. So it's about finding those through lines that you really believe in. And Mm. I feel so lucky, to be honest, that I found a passion that still fuels me to this day. So to me, the first leg of getting there was about really honing my craft and getting good at what I do. And that's about numerous mentors. And first, that was at Corn Ferry, then Russell Reynolds. I mean, I've been lucky to work with some amazing people in this industry. And then it was all about how do you feel that you're ready to make that leap? And I don't know that you ever feel 100% ready. I think all of us, if we were really honest, have a certain percentage of ourselves that always is a little bit about self-doubt. And so I don't know that at the time I did it, which was six years ago, I was 100% certain that I was ready. But the one thing I knew for sure is the passions that I had, which were two things, working with founders and building more diverse and inclusive teams were unique. In my opinion, they were not best served within the big firms. That was something that was more oriented towards, let's be more creative. Let's be more out of the box thinkers. Let's be known for something different. It was also about remaining small. We're a team of 14 people. We've always wanted to be small. And so those passions around working with founders and building more diverse and inclusive teams were the two things that led me to finally say, I am ready for this leap. And what you don't know is who will follow. But when you make that leap, I think one of the things that's so critically important is you're really clear about what you think it is that makes you different. I wouldn't have left 18 years of security to go do this if I didn't feel like there was something fundamentally different about what we were doing. Because otherwise, pretty easy to just stay where I was. And I will say this, it is not certainly without its challenges and its stresses, but it's the best job I've ever had. For those who want to be entrepreneurs, and I knew for a very long time that I wanted to do it before I finally gave myself permission to do it. And to be able to follow that dream, to make that dream a reality is like one of life's biggest gifts. 
That's awesome. Thank you for sharing that. I mean, your point about you took some time to identify that core passion and to follow it. And deeply part of you is that entrepreneurial spirit and really embracing the unique you and the unique offering that you could bring to the world. What might be one or two important takeaways and advice, if you have any, from all your years of experience? Is there one or two things you might share with us? Someone shared with me when I first started the company, they said, there's probably a million different decisions you're going to have to make. And some are really important. Some are moderately important. Some are not that important. But there are two that are mission critical. And by the way, these could apply to a founder, but they could also apply to anybody at any company in any role, really, that the two fundamental questions around your career, are these the problems I want to solve? So in other words, do these problems and the solving of them matter? Do they mean something to me? Are they powerful to me in some way? And number two, are these the people I want to solve them with? So this comes back to, do I respect them? Do I admire them? Do I feel that there's some really fundamental values that we share in common? And that comment was so powerful to me because in life, I think it's about trying to push aside some of the noise and focus on a couple of the things that really matter. And if you can ask yourself those questions over and over again, are these the problems I want to solve? Are these the people I want to solve them with? And if you get a pretty strong yes on both those things, There'll be many other things that will come into play that'll come on your radar. But if you can say yes to those two things, they're the things that most matter. Jenna, I really want to thank you so much. I have so many notes here. There are many, many insights, so much practical advice and tips. And it's really, really important, as we talked about, for people who are trying to navigate this particularly difficult time and continue on the path that makes sense for them even if they were navigating the job market in any time. This is so helpful. We really appreciate you being here with us and sharing so much. I've really enjoyed it. And I hope that there was a nice distribution of tennis balls across <laughs> across the net. But I loved hearing from you, seeing you and spending time with you. And thank you. Thank you for sharing so much with us. Oh, Mary, thank you so much. I treasure our long friendship and it was fun playing tennis with you. I'd do it again anytime. As hard as it is to imagine right now, the business world will get back to operating at full capacity, likely in a very different form and over time. And many companies will still have new and interesting and unexpected jobs that need to be filled this year. In fact, many are already hiring. As Jana pointed out, you'll have a huge competitive advantage if you're leveraging whatever time you can to strengthen your network and position yourself, whether it's brand or profile, and really invest in growing any aspect of your skill set. Take this time to maybe discover a new way of thinking about who you may become and the work you really want to do. We have a gift of time to reflect on our purpose, meaning, and impact which can be a springboard for your next steps. For more resources on this topic, visit us on modern-career.com and on social media at Modern Career Pod. We'll include the sources noted in the episode in our show notes. Look forward to talking again very soon. Mm-hmm.